You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. This postscript series of shows are supported by Fanatic.com, the fin rental company that ships FCS, Futures, Rainbow Fins, all the brands straight to your mailbox. Thrusters, quads, twins, singles, anything you want to try, Fanatic has it and you can keep them for as long as you want. Just send them back in the prepaid envelope that Fanatic provides. All the shipping is covered in your $10 monthly subscription. And you'll get your first month free by using our promo code podcast. But more importantly, you'll support this show. This is a smoking deal and will improve your surf experience and expand your quiver. Fanatic.com. Use promo code podcast. Thanks. My name is David Scales, and this is my postscript to the 2019 Rip Curl Pro Bells Beach. I hope that you enjoy Coming off the snapper event, which was actually the Deba event, we had Idolo Ferreira in the first position, Chloe Andino in second, John John Florence and Jordy in third, defending world champ Gabriel Medina in an equal fifth, along with rookie phenom Seth Moniz, American hopeful Connor Coffin, and last year's rookie of the year, Wade Carmichael. Julian Wilson failed to defend his quick pro title with an early round loss, reinstating the haunting question of whether or not he'll ever secure the elusive world title that always seems to be one wave away from his grasp. Kelly Slater had garnered one of the four available last place finishes, and in his post-heat interview seemed completely dejected, uninspired, and wayward about his role on tour. He would become reinvigorated, however, just days later while watching fellow goat Tiger Woods rise from his twilight to secure his fifth Masters win in Augusta. This marks Tiger's first Masters in 14 years and his first Majors title in 11 years. Kelly commented on it and attributed much of Tiger's win to experience over his competitors and being able to draw from that experience to subvert the pressure that was mounting, a foreshadowing of Kelly's coming week at Bell's. In that first event of our season, wild cards and rookies showed tremendous potential and added drama as they displaced legacy competitors, a storyline that would be continued 1,700 kilometers down the coast in the Southern Ocean off of Torquay. The 2019 Rip Curl Pro Bells Beach, in its 58th iteration, the longest-running pro surf comp, started with a whimper in marginal surf. Round one, which is now officially being called the seeding round, saw winning heat totals averaging around 13 points. The front runner competitors held their ground while again, Julian and Kelly both lost and would ultimately face each other in the elimination round of 32, where they would each implement a completely different strategy. Kelly's to stay busy and catch waves. Julian was simply to surf the best two waves of the heat 
As is often the case, the ocean would dictate whose strategy would prevail by never delivering viable set waves for Julian. Kelly pushed through with less than a pair of sixes, while Julian frustratingly sat out the back for a wave that would never transpire. This lull prompted the commissioner to move the contest over to Winky, where the wave count and progression level increased, but everyone still focused their attention on the building storm that in five days would bring with it massive surf. And so, for days, the ocean went flat and the contest went on hold. We resumed on Anzac Day, but not quite with the hashtag 50-year swell that was advertised. Nonetheless, it was massive, and it showcased the essence of all of surfing, not just competitive surfing. It showcased man and woman against nature, firstly, and then secondarily against their competitor. This moment of heroic efforts in unruly surf only really lasted half a day as the swell peaked and the winds added complication. The previous days were smaller and then the following day was a tiny bit smaller. It was still big, but it was also perfectly groomed by the wind. And as should be the case, the winner of the event would need to showcase their prowess in a wide variety of conditions. On the day that the swell increased, the WSL also reinstated the Heritage Series, where Aki and Curran continue their rivalry from yesterdecade. Aki looked as fit and inspired as he's looked in nearly two decades, and he actually decimated Curran, who, well, he did a Curran, and he chose to ride Super Dave, his Frankenstein-modified skimboard. This heat was simultaneously a letdown, and yet it was perfect. Aki did a classic backside blast that should inspire all of us to get fit. And then Curran simply did a Curran. He just kind of looked apathetic, rode that skimboard, looked amazing on it, but it's still a skimboard. So these are details that are probably lost on newer fans, but it's so great to be reminded of this time in surfing prior to athleticism and professionalism that we all kind of have benefited from today. So the WSL should keep that in mind, and in my opinion, they should keep doing these and also introduce other surfers, introduce other rivalries. It's good just to see some of our favorite surfers from the past surfing, and especially when utilized the way that they utilized it here, which was while they were transitioning the main event from Bells over to Winky. Anyways, back with the main event on, the drama peaked in the round of 16. Surf poured through for half a day at triple overhead. Surfers scrambled to find adequate equipment, and when they did, boards broke in nearly every heat. From duck diving, leash plugs being ripped straight through the tail of the board, or for Felipe, who broke a board by simply going straight and just hitting a chop. For all but three surfers, survival became the MO on this day. Surviving a heat meant surviving a ride to the finish. If one could navigate the bumps, which at times were head high on a triple overhead wave, they'd be lucky to try to squeak out two carves. For others, like defending champ Idolo Ferrer, survival was much more literal. After surfing a wave past Bells and towards Winky, Idolo got pushed in towards the rocks, and he was unable to paddle back through the endless whitewater to get back to Bells, nor was he able to paddle out far enough past the rocks to get swept down to Winky, so he was just stuck in front of the rocky cliff. The rescue skis were busy rescuing Jordy in his overlapping heat, so Idolo, at the mercy of the incoming whitewater, 
climbed up onto the rocks to safety and had resigned himself towards hiking back to the event site on foot. That's when a spectator spotted the jet ski en route to Idolo's rescue. So he jumped back into the peril of the ocean and tried to paddle towards the rescue ski in hopes of surfing the last 10 minutes of his heat. The ski thankfully was able to pick him up in that whitewater soup and then got him back into the lineup at Bell's. He ended up winning that heat over Jeremy Flores thanks to his previously surfed waves. Made it back to the beach. The cameras found him on the stairs after the heat where he looked like he was either in prayer or just complete contemplation of what had happened. Either way, he was thrilled back to be on terra firma, and he told Rosie Hodge in his post-heat interview that it was one of the craziest moments that he's ever had in the ocean. I mentioned that there were three surfers for whom survival wasn't the only objective, and that's to say that they actually looked comfortable in the massive unruly surf. It was dueling two-time world champs Gabriel Medina and John John Florence, along with Jordy Smith. You could argue that Kelly and Felipe also looked comfortable out there. Felipe was surfing beautifully, but he did it mostly on mid-sized waves. The key to his success was always timing. Bells can be challenging to sink into rhythm, but Felipe patiently waited for sections, and he never really deferred from going right up into heavy sections. This approach found him all the way into the finals. Kelly Slater was able to draw on his unequaled experience, but only in one heat, his only heat win of the season thus far. He finished in the quarterfinal where he lost to Ryan Callanan with a 5.6 heat total. Kelly admitted to Rosie that he never really felt in sync through the event. And although I've been critical of Kelly on this podcast, all of my commentary has been about Kelly's inability to keep up in small waves with younger acrobatic surfers. I actually expected Kelly to beat Ryan Callanan in big bells. And with all due respect to Ryan, this looked to be a failure of equipment choice for Kelly, another thing that has kind of plagued him throughout the last few years. During the biggest day of competition, in his round of 16 heat against Peterson Crisanto, where they had the first heat of the morning and the swell was on the increase, Kelly surfed his first wave in that heat. It was a smaller wave and it was on a Weber-shaped board where he garnered the highest score of the heat, a 6. And as that swell increased through the heat, Kelly ended up going in and swapping out boards for a longer Simon Anderson. He backed up that original six with a 4.8 and won the heat, but we never really got to see him ride that board again, and that was a shame. The board looked to be exactly what Kelly needed. Not nearly as responsive as the other boards he was riding through the event, but that was a very good thing. It had drive that's been missing from Kelly surfing in bigger, slopier surf. The Simon board was steady and predictable, and I haven't seen Kelly surf that fast in years. He was flying. The long arcs are precisely what those walls called for, and in fact, they were the key to his opponent, Ryan Callanan's success over Kelly in the quarters. Kelly's always been a pioneer with design and influencing board trends, but this should have been a moment where experience would have dictated longer, heavier equipment. He got the waves that he needed in that quarterfinal. They presented steep outside sections, walls that connected to inside closeouts, but Kelly's pacing just looked off on his lighter, smaller equipment. Another victim of seemingly not enough board refinement and focus over the years has been Jordy Smith. 
Jordy has ridden a wide variety of boards over the years, but really seemed to have dialed things in by the end of 2018 and looked especially refined at D-Baugh, where you'd expect him to be oversized on those smaller waves. That was thanks to a new board model that he had worked out with coach slash shaper Chris Gallagher. I'm presuming that they had his quiver dialed for bells as well, but maybe things went awry with the massive swell on the horizon. And I'm saying that because Jordy showed up for kind of those bigger days with an array of boards, from Eric Arakawa to a DHD to a Dahlberg. That said, Jordy looked amazing on everything he rode. While John and Gabriel generated highlights each time they surfed, Jordy just looked steady and pragmatic. As you'd expect from a former event winner, he looked completely comfortable and his pacing was never off beat. He surfed well in his semifinal heat against John John, garnering a 15.24 heat total. But it also struck me that he never really seemed to be giving 100%. He seemed casual throughout the event. And then I realized he looked casual on the Gold Coast too, both in the water and in interviews. So I wonder, is this a strategy? Is this a new Jordy? a world title Jordy. I think about Martin Potter's belabored point about peaking at the right time, which Potts means the final. Perhaps Jordy is actually applying that to a much greater arc of the entire season. His casual surfing coupled with his decade of experience on tour is adequate enough to get him into the finals at any event on tour. If this is his strategy, he'll sneak under the scrutiny of the media, the naysayers, and even his competitors who are busy strategizing against Gabriel, John John, Felipe, and Idolo. This suspected strategy by Jordy also mitigates against the undeniable and unfair phenomenon of oversaturating the judges. Meaning, if Felipe is pumping down the line towards an air section, we all, judges included, have an expectation for the quality of air that Felipe is capable of. Thereby, the air that he completes becomes judged off of our expectation rather than an objective measure. This discrepancy is easiest to appreciate if you think about William Cardoso pumping down the line towards that same section. If William throws his 210-pound body into the wind and spins a full rotation, he's virtually guaranteed to get eight points because we've never seen him do it before. Felipe, on the other hand, needs to exceed our Felipe expectations to get an excellent range score. So, Jordy reserving 20% of his full throttle surfing for moments when he needs it, not in a given heat, not even in a given event, but for moments where he needs it in the season, is not only prudent, it's actually a level of competitive strategy that we've never seen from Jordy. And it could be the exact ingredient that he needs to unlock that world title. Before we get into the superstars of the event, John John and Gabriel, let's quickly detour to revisit Chloe Andino, who entered Bells in second after a very tough judge's decision at Deba. Chloe is leaving Bells in sixth after losing to wildcard Jacob Wilcox in the round of 32 before the surf got huge. Wilcox deserves a huge congrats. He surfed amazingly through the event. And in my postscript for the Quick Pro, I questioned Kolohe's, or really any human being's, mental fortitude to soldier on after some of the very unconventional adversities that Kolohe has faced. Well, 
Red Bull has reintroduced their 21 Days video series, and their first episode features Chloe Andino and Jadson Andre as they prep for the Quicksilver Pro. I've included that with today's videos on surfsplendorpodcast.com, and it really offers a deep dive into Chloe's psyche and current mental state. So I think it's well worth watching, and it provides really interesting context for the rest of his season. So definitely check that out. Back to the Rip Curl Pro and back to the quarterfinals. John John Florence and Gabriel Medina seemed destined to collide throughout this event. As with some of our sport's greatest rivalries, they are such an interesting contrast of styles. They consistently one-upped each other's heat scores on opposite ends of the draw. John John with 13 points in the initial seeding round, Gabriel barely beating it with 13.7. Then the next round, Gabriel ups it to a 16.03, and then John posts a 17.67. In the round of 16, Gabe increases to a 17.27, and then John goes ham with an 18.16, the highest total of the entire event. Through each round, I kept thinking John's a step ahead of Gabriel, but it was really more a reflection of my own preference for John. Objectively, it is very difficult to argue who was surfing better. Both surfers had insane speed, power, and flow. Both attacked the lip, even on the massive day. However, one point of difference for John over virtually everyone else is just his poise. He's virtually motionless between sections. Bells hits these lully sections and everyone else seems to keep their board moving and is anxious at the building wall down the line. John John, on the other hand, he just stands there. He's still driving his board and he always seems to be in the prime spot to approach the next bowl or lip, but there's something majestic about seeing him stand there motionless in confidence on triple overhead waves. And so maybe you call it style, but I think that that does factor into the judge's decisions. Ultimately, it was John John who imposed his will over Gabriel in the quarterfinal, where he posted a 16.87 to Gabriel's 15.17. The one criticism of John is that his selection of turns were perhaps repetitive. Well, he mainly relied on two turns, an open face carve and then an end section slam. That said, they were both the appropriate turn for those sections, and he was doing them to a degree of gnarliness that was completely unmatched. Further, the open-faced carve covered so much ground that it was remindful of his famed Margaret River carves, which was a thrill just to see recreated. And then his top turns were slammed against the lip, but they were really front side carves with his rail fully buried while timing it perfectly to be slammed snugly right up against the lip on what was sometimes an overhead wave or often was an overhead wave. It was surreal. And while repetitive from one heat to the next, it was just so spectacular and unlike what anyone else was doing on their forehand. So he was the form surfer of the entire event. And it's also worth mentioning that he was riding a 6-2 throughout. He went on to beat Jordy in the semis, again, with Jordy seemingly surfing at 80%. Felipe beat Ryan Callanan in the opposing semi. The storm was somewhat tempered, and the finals day presented flawless conditions and double overhead surf. 
Felipe continued with his tack sharp surfing, perfectly paced, meeting the lip whenever it presented, and then drifting up and over sections. He dominated the first half of the final with a 6.5 and a 7.33, while John John actually fell on his first two efforts, perhaps a reflection of the fact that this was their third heat of the day. With 20 minutes left in their 40-minute final, John John posted his first meaningful score, a 6.67 for a trio of turns, similar but lesser to what we had seen from him throughout the entire event. Eight minutes later, and with John John still needing a 7.17, he picked off a steeper wave, sticks to his same equation, an open-faced carve, cut back, and then an inside slam, but the wave had also presented a lip out the back, and that additional slam garnered him an extra point, netting a 7.63 and the lead through the last 10 minutes of the final, where Felipe was never presented a wave. 13.83 for Felipe to John John's 14.3, which incidentally was both of their lowest heat scores through the entire event. Congratulations to John John Florence for winning the 2019 Rip Curl Pro Bells Beach. The top 10 looks very different going into Bali, which by the way is a detour this year before coming back to Margaret's. So John John's in pole position, Idolo's in second, Jordy's in third, Felipe leaps forward five spots into fourth, Gabriel stays in fifth, Kaloe gets bumped down four spots into sixth, and the biggest mover is Ryan Callanan jumping eight spots into the eighth position. Seth Moniz looks uncontested for his Rookie of the Year bid, and he sits in 7th overall. Reef Hazelwood is sitting in 16th, and he's not even on tour this year. In a simultaneously comedic and heroic storyline, Jadson sits in 30th position, but is already re-qualified for 2020 via the QS. I would predict that the top 5 will all perform really well in Karamas, whether the surf is perfect or slop. They are all really well equipped for either scenario out there. Idolo is the defending event champ. This is the location where John John Florence sustained his season-ending injury last year. Will Jordy cruise to another semifinal? It's likely. Kaloe Andino and Julian Wilson's surfing is perfectly suited for this venue but they'll need to introduce some of the thrills that we've come to expect from that top five. This will also be a great venue to confirm or contradict my critique of the modern Kelly Slater's small wave prowess or lack thereof. For the record, I'm hoping to be wrong in my assessment. Perhaps in the next two weeks, Tiger Woods can do something spry and spectacular. He has until May 13th. I'll catch you then at Chrome.